This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Hey guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller. I'm a travel writer, and this show is all about immersing you in adventure and the amazingness of this planet. Are you ready? Let's go. Our guest today is John Rose. He was a professional surfer for many years. He's competed at the highest level around the world, won competitions, been on the front covers of all the best surf mags in the world. And since retiring as a pro a few years ago, he's gone on to do even more incredible things. That's part of the story. And I'm not going to ruin the surprise, but let me just say that John is one of those people that is truly changing the world and he's doing it in such a cool way it was an honor and an inspiration to have him on and i think you're gonna love what he has to say but i know i get it you're thinking what the heck what is a pro surfer telling us about horseback riding in mongolia for fair enough but the reason why john chose this story is not just because mongolia is an awesome place and one of the best places for truly wild off the beaten track adventure on the planet The reason why is because of water. And to understand that, we have to go back to an event that changed his life forever. It was on a surfing trip this time. It was in Indonesia in 2009. And we're going to hear about that soon. But first, and super quickly, I just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's been listening and supporting the show. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please spread the word. Tell a friend, a fellow explorer, leave a review. We are building a community of people that love the outdoors, that love adventure, and want to celebrate this amazing planet of ours by jumping head first in. If that sounds like you, come and hang out. You're in the right place. We are going to get on well. The Instagram and Twitter is at Aaron M. Writer, double A-R-O-N M. Writer. The Facebook page is at Armchair Explorer Podcast, and the website is armchair-explorer.com. And you can book any of the trips you hear about on the show on that website. You can find out about background on any of the episodes you listen to, and you can also sign up to the newsletter where I put out my curated list of the best travel and adventure podcast episodes to listen to, the best travel writing and adventure inspiration to dream about and do, and the best adventure travel trips coming up. It's free, it's fun, and if you love travel and adventure, I hope you'll find this useful too. But for now... Don't worry about all that because you're just going to close your eyes and let John take you on one of the most incredible adventures on the planet. We are going to the other side of the world, to the land of Genghis Khan and the far outer reaches of Mongolia. But first, let's start with some surfing. I grew up in Laguna Beach, just me and my dad, you know, shoestring budget, you know, we were living in a small studio. He slept on the bed. I slept on the couch in the same room. It was a whole new world. My parents had just got separated. We were, I mean, it's a beautiful place, but my dad was very much like, look, I get off work at 5.30, you get off school at 2.30. There's three hours there. Um, not, I'm not really gonna throw down for a babysitter, so go to the beach. 
I think I just channeled everything that I was feeling at the time. Everything you're feeling as a 10 year old boy trying to just explore who you start to explore the world and who you are within it. <laughs> and I think I channeled everything into surfing and it just became this obsession. I, of course, I took to it and, and I realized that about myself at this point that I definitely, once I zero in on something, then there's just, there's nothing going to get in my way. For me, the feeling of surfing was the feeling of raw, pure athleticism that I could connect with, as well as connect with this bigger force than myself, which was nature. And I just completely fell in love with surfing and just said, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to, I want to do this for a living. This is all I want to do. I want to eat, sleep, and breathe surfing. And he did. And he got good, really good. He started entering local competitions. His dad would take him up and down the coast to surf against the best kids in California. And he beat them. And he got better and better and more determined. And by the age of 14, he was sponsored. And eventually, he moved up to national competitions. He won a bunch of those. And at age 17, Quicksilver came in and offered him a pro contract to compete on the world stage. Dream come true. I had about a 12, 13 year career. And the first half of that was really focused around competitions, mostly because it was what we thought was our only viable path to success within the sport. But I also realized that what I like, I realized so much within that first, let's say, six years of really pursuing the competition route was what I liked was exploring and, and adventuring and, and traveling and see, not just seeing these places. I liked surfing, believe me, it was my first and foremost focus, but surfing in those places and, and, and the, all the things that went along with surfing being the tip of the spear, all of the other things behind that, surfing gave me a really great sense of self at an early age. Pro surfing gave me a greater sense of self because of what I got to experience as a result. And that's something that I really felt drawn towards, I guess. I ended up, for the, the last half of my career, focusing on, on what they call professional free surfing, you know, just going out there and trying to find the best ways, getting creative um, with uh, where we would go and, and really cool magazine features and stuff like that. And um, for me, I, I think I had my greatest success during that time. Free surfing gets to the heart of what surfing was originally all about, what it's really about, connecting to the ocean, just you and the board and maybe a few friends hanging out, looking for that perfect wave, no points, no podiums, just the pure joy of movement and harmony with the ocean. And John found many perfect waves in his years as a professional free surfer. He surfed all across Australia, South Africa, Bali and Fiji. He appeared in magazines and surf videos all around the world. Towards the end of his career, he really started to push the envelope of what was possible and what had been done before too, surfing big waves in places like Iceland. He even surfed the tidal bore of the Severn River in England, which I didn't even know was a thing. But of all the places he surfed, Indonesia was his favorite. And it was on one of those trips that something happened which changed his life, something shocking and harrowing and unexpected. 
And we're going to hear about that in a second. But first, there's another piece of the puzzle because by the end of his career, John increasingly wanted to give something back to the places he'd visited. He had seen firsthand on his travels the struggles and difficulties that many of those communities were going through, and he wanted to do something about it. He just didn't realize at the time how big that idea would become or how timely that decision would prove to be. I had this idea to do a fun little organization called Waves for Water that helps people with access to clean water, not as a job whatsoever, but just as a fun little pet project that we can do when we go on surf trips. A lot of these places I've been to personally, I've seen with my own eyes, have access to water. It's just not clean. And there's devices out there from I knew from backpacking and whatever that, that can clean it. So why, there's, there's not a question of technology. There's, it's a question of access. So if I can provide that access as sort of like the bridge, then we'll call it waste for water. We'll call it a day. So be it. Have fun. Okay, I'm just going to interject here because we're going to hear more about ways for water in the course of this story. But I love this spirit of how it was founded. Have fun while you're out there having these adventures, while you're traveling and surfing and climbing mountains and whatever you do, have some fun, but do some good too. And what I love about that is that it just feels really possible and it feels exponential too. If all of us just do a little bit of good while we're out there having our adventures and exploring the world, it could make a huge difference. It could change the world. And guess what? It's about to. So that was all that was all sort of in my in my mind leading up to um, September of 2009 when a friend called me and said, "Hey, we've got a boat trip going to the Mentawai Islands in Indonesia. Um, that's off Sumatra. It's my favorite place to go surf." And he said, "One of the guys backed out. He's going to lose his deposits. So if you decide to fill it, it'll be a thousand dollars less." So it was the worst timing. I mean, the absolute worst timing. I was like, my marriage wasn't really working out. I didn't have really a strong income whatsoever. And I, I mean, there's no way I should say yes to a $3,000 trip, <laughs> you know, because there's the boat fees and then the planes and all this stuff. But I just said, you know what? Like, I basically, I took all of our bill money that we had set aside for bills for the next month, uh, my wife and I, and I used it for this trip without telling her. There's something brilliant about that. Not that you should sneak behind your wife's back and use the rent money to go surfing, but sometimes the universe just conspires to make things happen. Here he was. He had just had this idea he was playing around with to deliver a few water filters. No big deal. His friend calls him up and invites him to go surfing in Indonesia. And the Mantuai Islands, by the way, are like the most pristine, perfect tropical paradise you could imagine. Palm trees, white sands, turquoise waters, and perfect surf. Look at a picture of them. I'll put them up on the website and you will totally understand why he spent his last pennies on going there. But still, it was a crazy thing to do by all accounts. He really shouldn't have been there, but it's lucky that he was. The idea was to buy 10 water filters uh, with my own money and bring them over there, do the surf trip. At the end of the trip, when everyone was going to fly home, I was going to stay for two days longer, fly to this other island that I'd been to before that I knew had needs and I had contacts, teach them how to use these filters, 
call it a day, come home, call it waves for water. Um, so that was the plan. And we're, we're out surfing for our 10 day trip or whatever. We're out on the boat and having, having the best time ever. And then we're coming back in the, the last night to, to go to our port. And um, that's when the earthquake hit. It was late in the afternoon on the 30th of September 2009 when a 7.6 magnitude earthquake hit the city of Padang on the island of Sumatra. That's just about as big an earthquake as you can get. And in a city like Padang, which is home to 1.2 million people, and many of the buildings are not protected against that kind of disaster in any way, the effect was devastating. The captain got a report over the CB radio or one of the one of those channels that said, hey, there's been a massive earthquake. We felt it. Um, you could feel it even in the ocean because um, the earth is moving. And even on, under all that water is earth. So it's really bizarre, but you could feel it. And um, we got in at night and decided to just stay in the boat because we didn't know what was up with the town. We had hotel reservations. We just never showed up to them. We stayed in the port or our offshore and then when the sun came up, we were all on the deck on the bow of the boat and had a view of the city that we all knew very well. I mean, we'd been through there many times and it was almost unrecognizable. Um, certain certain big buildings you remembered being there were, were gone. There was like smoke from all corners and it just looked like Armageddon. And I just asked the, the captain, I said, I want to go in there. Can 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 you have one of your deck hands take me in on on the tin boat, and and I want to try and implement these water filters that I brought here because I'm assuming they need them way more here than the island I was going to go to because it's right in front of you, you know, and I could see it with my own eyes. And he said, absolutely, no problem. And I went went into the city, and it's 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 hard to think about it. I'm not hard. It's it's um. Hard not to get a little emotional about it. It it was such a visceral, crazy, just divine moment that slammed me over the head. I remember stepping off, you know, off the safety of the little tin boat and then ultimately the safety of the bigger boat with friends of mine that I knew and the captain and I knew it was safe and just going into like some sort of apocalypse, you know. And um, finding a little Indonesian Red Cross, I think it was a Red Cross center, and everyone walking around like zombies because people were still caught underneath rubble. You could hear them screaming, and you could, you know, it was it was as real as it gets. And and the red, the relief workers were just local Indonesians. International relief doesn't usually show up for two days, two to three days, but this is like hours after it happened. So I went to the first relief center. And they, you know, we we had to go find buckets and scour the city. And I mean, the things I saw, I mean, it was so intense. But um, we kept kept our focus, built a water filter system for that center. And I said, look, you guys can drink clean water now. And they said, thank you so much. Um, We're going to use actually use this water to clean the wounded. I mean, there was two tents outside of each of these centers, one with dead bodies and one with wounded. And if they didn't have access to clean water, which they weren't going to use the drinking water supply, um, then that whole wounded tent 
could go to the other tent. That was one relief center. I I asked the helpers there when it was a success and we did it and it was like, we, we kind of had a system now and a formula of how to, what we needed and how to create this and my first time doing it. And I said, how many other relief centers are there? And they said nine. This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. And he had 10 filters with him. Sometimes the universe conspires to put you where you need to be. John spent the next 30 hours running around the city setting up clean water systems for every single one of the A-tents. There were 10 in total, and he had brought 10 water filters with him. He saved thousands of lives, including, in a way, his own. And then I went back to the boat. I, I radioed the captain and went back to the boat, and I just, I was a completely different person. I mean, there was John before that moment and John after that moment. I just, I just was so clear, so clear cut in it about who, I guess, yes, who I was, but definitely what I felt like I was here to do, what I felt like I was put on this planet to do. Like, and it was this path and it was to put everything and all of my experience and everything that I was able to, um, collect in my life to that point and funnel it and focus it into this super clear path of providing access to clean water for people who don't have it. And, you know, it was just as clear as day. I came home. I basically was just like, I want a divorce. I want this. I want that. I'm just, I want all I want to do is get back to Indonesia and help more of those people. And he did. He got home and immediately fundraised enough money to buy 300 water filtration systems to take back to Indonesia to help with the aftermath of the disaster. The earthquake hit at the end of September. He was back on the ground in Sumatra by December. He set those up, he got everything running, and then he came back home to decompress from what was an incredibly harrowing and emotionally exhausting experience. And then one week later, disaster struck again the haiti earthquake hit on january 10th and i remember watching it on the news my my friend ross williams and i had the most amazing day of of big big waves so it was a really big swell and we got this just a magical session and we came back to his house and 
my cell phone rang and it was um, someone who had seen a article or something on the Indonesia experience. And they said, we're mobilizing to go to Haiti. Um, we want to provide medical food and water. And um, is what you did in, in Indonesia viable for Haiti? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And they said, cool, do you want to go tomorrow? So I said, yes. And I left the next day on a, on a chartered flight and went down there and thought I was going for two weeks and stayed for two years. That is how quickly your life can change. And it was during those two years in Haiti that Ways for Water just exploded from this casual idea to help people while John was traveling into, almost by accident, one of the largest clean water organizations in the world with programs in 48 countries helping close to 4 million people. John's literally one of the most inspiring guys I've ever met just because he was able to just do it, just on a dime, turn his life around and do it and help literally millions of people. But I just want to go back to its roots, how this whole thing got started. And that is where Mongolia comes in and maybe where you and I come in too. Because even though Waves for Water ended up becoming a huge organization, it started with adventures, with explorers, with travelers, with people just like us. My thought was like, wait, why don't we just continue to live and go pursue the things that we love, our passions, but plug purpose into that. Like, why do I have to drop everything and choose, okay, now I'm going to go serve people. Now I'm going to go, um, you know, because we live such compartmentalized lives, I think humans do, where it's like, oh, this is where I work. This is where I have fun. This is where I help. This, You know, and I'm, I just want to put it all in the blender and, and shake it all up. And so the, what came out was courier program idea which was hey there's enough people traveling already traveling to these places that have these needs what if that we could create a crowdfunding platform so they can raise funds to purchase filters we train them we give them all the tools knowledge everything they're going to need to be able to implement those filters on their own they create their own experience and they leave those places that they pass through better than they found them and that's exactly what John does, not just as a company, but as a person too. His passion is adventure and the outdoors. And so every year he goes on at least one big trip. He's ridden motorcycles through Bhutan. He's trekked the Himalayas. And everywhere he goes, he brings as many water filters as he can carry and drops them off to people that need them along the way. And his best trip, his best story from the road, well, that's Mongolia. And that's why we're going there. So the plan for Mongolia was a horseback journey through the, the lakes, which are it's like the, called the Seven Lakes. The landscape itself is just breathtaking. It looks like, I mean, there's sometimes it looks like Scotland. Sometimes it looks like um, very deserty. You know, sometimes it looks like, yeah, uh, the, the Rockies. You know, it, it, it's kind of got everything and you're going through all these different little micro climates and ecosystems and it's a very nomadic culture when you get outside of Ulaanbaatar which is their capital city and you know you're just out in the middle of this vast beautiful landscape and all of a sudden you come up on like three little gurs which is um 
their their little huts are called gurs. They're like yurts, basically, and um, they're all collapsible, and they they'll, they'll move with their herds of yaks. And, and um, the idea was that you'd run into a little cluster of of families, and they would let you sleep inside one of their gurs. Really, really amazing experience. Mongolia is amazing. They call it the land of the blue sky. There's just this incredible sense of limitless space, of remoteness, of vast, untamed wilderness. And there's culture and history, too, that's unlike anywhere else in the world. Mongolia is Genghis Khan country. Chinggis, as he was known here, the universal ruler who rose to become the greatest conqueror the world has ever seen. But more than anything, it's the way that Mongolia makes you feel. The locals say it sets your himori free, your wind horse or spirit, and that's exactly how it feels, unbounded, as limitless as the blue sky itself. But to truly experience and understand the land of Shingas, you must leave the city and the roads behind and ride out on horseback into the wilds. Mongolians love their horses, they're expert equestrians, every single one, and in Mongolia, everything is better on a horse. You must ride out to the uncharted country where the people still live the old way, herding livestock and moving with the seasons. And that's exactly what John did. They spent a week on horseback trekking through some of the most spectacular scenery in the country, visiting remote clusters of families along the way. It was an incredible, life-changing week. But we're just going to zoom in on one part of it because... It's kind of indicative of what the whole trip was about and what makes Mongolia so special. And let's just say, John got a little more culture than he bargained for. I remember the first one that we came up on, We they were having a wedding. And we, of course, introduce ourselves and say, hey, I'm so sorry, we're, we're interrupting, but it's not like that. It's not like you're walking in on somebody's wedding. You're, so you're in the middle of nowhere and we come up on horses. And because it was a waves for water trip, I was looked at as the leader of our group. And it was just very customary for me to go with the, the bride and groom, to go into their gur with them and, and them share some of the feast and like some of the real prized um, morsels that they had. There's this photo of me sitting in between the bride and groom. They, they wanted me to sit in between them and drink fermented mare's milk. Yeah, that's mare's milk, as in horse, not cow, and fermented, so basically old. It's called Arek, and it's the Mongolian national beverage. Um, I told you they love their horses, right? Well, they really do. Now, don't get me wrong, I am all about trying out new foods when I'm traveling, and I have eaten my fair share of weird stuff, including, but not limited to, crickets, snails, no idea why that's considered a delicacy, and sheep intestine fried up and handed to me like some kind of four-foot-long chewy tentacle. I'm a vegetarian. I ate it to be polite. So it goes without saying that I'm a big believer in trying out new things and following local customs. But still, I can't help but have a little smile on my face when I think of John in between the newlyweds on day one, both of them staring at him intently as he has to neck a glass of smelly old horse milk. And then with the other stuff was this crazy curdled yak cheese and then this stuff and that stuff and they, there was this giant dead sheep that was like right in front of us that they had just a knife on the top and you're supposed to just cut pieces off if you wanted it and you know they're just 
They're like these sweet angelic people and also just hard too, so hardened by their environment. But their eyes and their spirit is very angelic. You know, it's like they're just these sweet, amazing people. Um, I remember sitting there and just my crew, all, the whole crew watching because they, you know, were in there too. And you just walked in and it smelled like the most pungent, intense meat slash dairy smell. And you're inside this little girl and there's a tiny little stove in the middle and you just... It's just so real, you know, it's so visceral. And it's also the reason why you do this. I mean, it's the reason why you travel. Like, you know, I didn't take giant gulps of the mare's milk. I, you know, kind of did my taste look, that made it look like I was drinking a little more than I was. We all know that one. And I think we can forgive you that, mate, especially because he was also giving something back. And that's what makes this trip so special. Sometimes when we travel, it can feel one-sided. We are visiting their country and in a way we're taking something from them, their culture, their hospitality, their photograph, their food. And even if we pay for those things, I sometimes feel that what I'm getting from them is very personal. And yet what I'm giving back to them is very impersonal. So there's a kind of imbalance. The beauty of the courier service is that it allows us to give something personal back to something important beyond money. And that is the basis of genuine friendship and connection. Of course, a lot of their kids had dysentery and, you know, the same things we find anywhere else because they don't have any infrastructure. They don't have any any access to potable water um, unless they're boiling it. And they're just getting water out of the streams. And that's where a lot of animal fecal matter, you know, mixes and... Um, so we told them our purpose and told them why we were there and just that we love their country and we, we love being able to have this experience through their country on these amazing animals and that we, we want to improve their quality of life if, if they need it, you know, and, and they were totally interested and we just, it was so it's when you're doing the career program and you're in that type of a setting and that type of, and you're, you're approaching a community and um, implementing a solution in that way. It is, it's almost like humanity in its in its greatest form. Like it's just so pure, and it, it's it goes back to the old days where like you bring something for them, they bring something for you. It's a way to to, to be gracious with one another, to honor one another uh, with no pretenses. A gift for a gift. They offered their hospitality, their culture, their food, their mare's milk, and John offered something back. And that's what it's all about. And as beneficial as it is to that family, it's also beneficial to us. It makes that adventure have a purpose and it makes it real in a way that a traditional tourism experience could never be. So John trekked for seven days and seven nights through one of the remotest regions in the country, staying with local families, enjoying their hospitality, making friends and helping where he could. But in the end, as amazing as those cultural experiences were, and of course, that's what stays with you more than anything, it was the land itself that made the biggest impact. It set his himori, his spirit free. The things like that I personally am drawn to the things that fill my cup up the most are the, 
being completely immersed in nature and and more than that vast nature so the vastness is what just takes it to the next level for me where you come over a saddle uh between two peaks and you look down and there's a giant lake and river system and then there's there's sparkling you know uh, wild grass meadow and pastures with wild horses running around and you're looking at these beautiful black boulders that are on one side of the the meadow and on the other side is is a peak that goes all the way up with even some snow on it and for me that is that is like that aha moment that's where you just go okay i'm this is pure bliss this is what bliss feels like vast nature i love that not just nature but vast overwhelming humbling nature for that is where true wonder resides that is what true bliss feels like by understanding different cultures we come to understand ourselves better too and where we came from good and bad we see things more clearly we free ourselves for john it happened all of a sudden a slap on the face from the universe as he describes it a wake up call and the change was huge it won't be like that for all of us but each of us can make a difference go climb that mountain go surf that wave go explore that new city just do what you love and help along the way and if we all did that the potential is exponential because when it comes to john's work in the clean water crisis this is a problem that can be solved maybe even in our lifetime i have a lot of optimism um and I, i'll tell you why when i first started out it was the the global statistic was 1 in 6 people don't have access to clean water now it's 1 in 9 um that's an improvement now it it i also believe if you if i was going to really push it i believe it's solvable in our lifetime globally because it's not like some cure that we're trying to figure out for some disease and we just don't know yet the solutions exist it's a matter of applying them of aligning all of those pieces together so that everybody has access to clean water period and that starts with us this is actually a really positive story the percentage of the global population that has access to clean water has increased from 76% in 1990 to now more than 90% that's a lot and it's something we're doing right but there are still hundreds of millions of people who don't have access and we can change that one adventure at a time thank you john thank you for telling us this inspiring at times hard and heartfelt story thank you for your honesty and the work you do and if you would like to get involved and i know that i am next time i go somewhere that needs clean water i'm going to be taking some of john filters with me for sure uh you can find out more on his website wavesforwater.org it has all the information you need to get started they will help you fundraise to buy the filters which by the way cost about 50 bucks and one filter can supply hundreds of people clean water every day for about 5 years think about that $50 and you could change the life of an entire village. I'll put up all the details on the website along with some background photos and info and more so please do check that out. I also want to give a shout out to John's new initiative Rascals Roundup. I think you're going to like this one. rascalsroundup.org. We're all a bunch of rascals really, aren't we? This is like a global fundraiser. Uh it takes place on March 22nd every year, which is World Water Day. 
Basically, what you do is you choose your adventure sport, anything from mountain biking or skiing or boarding or surfing. You set a fundraising target, you round up your best rascal mates to join in, and you raise some money for the global water crisis while having a killer day out doing what you love. It's an awesome idea. I'm planning on doing one, uh, so please do get in touch if you live around here and you want to hang out March 22nd. Finally, thank you to you, to all of you for listening. It really does mean the world to me. Thank you so much. I love going on these adventures with you. And we have so many more great ones coming up from sailing around the world to dancing with the sand Bushmen in Namibia and lots more. I created this show to try and spread a message of positivity and connection and love for the outdoors and for adventure. And if that message resonates with you, please help spread the word. Leave a review, tell a friend and subscribe to the show. Because despite the darkness and negativity that's going on in the world, and we hear so much of that, it's important that we still see the light. Because remember, the more that we look for the wonder of the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive.